Thank you guys for uh, joining us this morning. I'm excited to have the opportunity to uh, open and hear from God's Word with you this morning. Um, before we begin, let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray that you would uh, be speaking to us through your Word this morning, that you would uh, be uh, speaking through me, that you would uh, empower these words in our lives as we go forth from here. Amen. So the idea for what to preach on uh, this week really came from a burden that I felt uh, really first for myself and also for the guys that I've had the opportunity to interact with through Young Life. And I also had a uh, similar burden, uh, especially going into the wedding festivities for my sister and our brother-in-law a couple weeks ago. And now I share the same burden with you that we would live out this faith that we confess. That brings us to our passage for this morning, which is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me read these verses for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this morning we're kind of jumping right into the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. So if we, um, just by means of a quick introduction, you guys are probably very familiar with the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, who, though he was not a disciple, of Jesus while he was on earth, he had an encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, and this dramatically changed his life, gave Paul his apostolic authority, and defined the direction of the early church. Paul writes this letter probably from Greece and uh, to the city, uh, to the church in the city of Rome, and he writes in preparation for his visit to Rome as he makes his way towards Spain. Paul seeks to promote unity through the proclamation that salvation comes to all that believe Jesus' sacrificial death. So if we, were, if we were to take a step back and look at the book of Romans in its entirety, we would see that chapter 12 bridges the gospel message, the message of salvation that comes through belief in the sacrificial death of Jesus. This message of justification on the basis of faith found in the first 11 chapters of the letter with what Paul's about to focus on, the application in the last five chapters. So let me reread verses one and two for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul begins these verses with an appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. What will follow then is this urgent exhortation. Paul is begging the following of his reader. We can tell from this type of language that um, this message is going to be grounded in Paul's deep concern and love for the reader. Paul uh, also possesses a deep care for the love, a deep care and love for the reader, um, which is shown by the way he dresses them as brothers. We see that these fellow, these brothers, these are fellow believers with whom Paul is shares this connection, this bond in Christ, and he loves them as he would his own family. 
So based on this, we know that what will follow has the reader's best interest in mind. What will follow is for our good. Now, with such an appeal having been made, great weight and importance replaced by what Paul is about to say. That brings us to the fifth word of the sentence, the word therefore. This word tells us that something is just concluded and now serves as the basis for what's going to follow. This is essentially the why for what will follow. So what then is just concluded? We see that Paul has really unfolded the gospel for us. From Romans 1.20, we see that there is one God, the creator of all things. And as God and creator, God created us to know him, to love him, and enjoy him forever. And as God, as creator, he had the right to tell us what to do and not do. He created us to worship him alone. However, as we saw uh, a couple weeks ago, and even as we addressed again today in our Bible study hour, in Genesis, um, we see that, as Romans 1.25 puts it, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator God. So Adam and Eve in paradise, they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, seeking to make themselves like God. And in so doing, they brought the curse onto all the world. Then in Romans 3.23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each one of us, having the sin nature of our forefather, have failed to obey God's commands in their entirety. We have sinned against him. Now if we turn ahead to Romans 6.23, we see that Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So way back in Genesis 2, we see God tell Abraham, or not Abraham, Adam, that if he were to break God's command and eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that day he would surely die. From the beginning, we see that our sin will bring about God's wrath. We deserve an eternal death because of our sin. We deserve to have God pour out his infinite wrath on us for all of eternity. But the second part of verse 23 tells us there's a hope. Christ is our hope. Now let's look back at Romans 5, 8, and 9, which say, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God sent his only son into the world who, though being fully God himself, took on the flesh of man and lived a sinless life and died in our place. In so doing, Christ made a way for God's wrath to be satisfied while at the same time allowing us to experience his mercy. And what does this hope mean for us? If we look at Romans 10, 9, we see that it means if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We see that salvation comes through belief. The letter to the Romans makes it abundantly clear that justification, that is our right standing before God, is standing that brings about our escape from his wrath and into his grace is brought about by faith. That is faith in the person and work of Christ. Romans 5 tells us that we've been justified by faith. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now all of this, that is the gospel, serves as motivation for what will come, what will be commanded to carry out in Romans 12. And it's this therefore where I intend to spend most of our time on this morning, and we'll return here in just a bit.
as we go on in Romans 12, we see that we're ultimately called to worship or reasonable or rational service, as you see, as you might find in some of your translations or in the footnotes of some of your Bibles. So what is this worship or this service? Today we have a tendency to think of worship as just um, like the 15 minutes or so of singing before a service on, on a Sunday. But the reality is that all of our lives ought to be worship. Is what I think about in, when I'm laying in my bed, worship. It's the way I get ready for work, worship. It's the way that I drive to work, worship. Now that's one that I sometimes struggle with. <laughs> it's the way that I interact with my coworkers and my classmates, worship. It's what I talk to my friends about, worship. It's what I use my time to do, worship. So everything we think or we say or we do should be done in service to God. Everything should be done in worship. And our service to God is based in reason. It's logical considering all that Paul has just unfolded for us. In Boyce's commentary on Romans, he writes, The service here in view is worshipful service, and the apostle characterized it as rational because it is worship that drives its character and acceptable, as acceptable to God from the fact that it enlists our minds, our reason, our intellect. So is the mercy of God what drives and compels us in all these situations which I just mentioned? Is it what drives us in our everyday life? So now that we have this more broad definition of worship, how are we to worship? What does this worship look like? So if we look back just a couple uh, phrases or so in um, verse 1, we'll see that we're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, what is a living sacrifice? So, sacrifice is really this Old Testament term or idea. And from Romans uh, 6.23, we see that uh, the wages of sin is death, or the punishment for sin is death. So, we deserve death because of our sin. We personally deserve to be that which is offered up on the altar. But God made another way. He offered up his son to die in our place and to take on himself the punishment that we deserved. And what then is a living sacrifice? This would have been quite the statement for Paul's original audience who had been very accustomed with the practice of sacrifices, but in each of their cases, something had to die. So what is this living sacrifice? And though we might be called to lay down our life at some point, I think what this verse has in mind is not that uh, is more has to do with um, using all of us, our minds, our tongues, our hands, and every other part of us, all our lives, to worship God. But again, what does this look like? So if we turn back to chapter 6, we get a picture of what this type of life, of life we live as living sacrifice looks like. So we look at verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice does not mean that we add anything to the work of Christ. We are in no way earning our salvation. Rather, we are living out the work that God has already done in us and for us. Peter in 1 Peter 2.5 makes a very similar to 
similar admonition to what Paul has said here. He writes, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's making it abundantly clear that it is only because of and through Christ that we are capable of offering spiritual sacrifices of ourselves to God. So how do we accomplish this? Where does our strength to carry this out come from? Many of us have probably heard this message to live a holy and upright life, to live your life for Christ, to obey his commands time and time again. Many of us know the right thing to do, having been uh, taught it by loving parents or great teachers, and even our consciences themselves bear witness as to what is right and wrong. Yet we have this gap between the knowledge and the way we live our lives. There really is this gap between our heads and our hearts. Now, to this dilemma, Paul provides a means of help. In the middle of verse 1, we see that Paul includes this phrase, by the mercies of God. It is the mercies of God that empower holy and acceptable living, which is itself worship. Now, what are the mercies of God? In his commentary, James Montgomery Boyce puts it simply, He, that is God, has been good to us in many ways. Mercy refers to not receiving the just punishment for our wrongdoing, our sin. Arthur W. Pink wrote, Mercy denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. This mercy presupposes sin. What does this mean? It means that we are fallen. We have sin against God, wronging Him. Yet God relents from punishing us and pouring out His wrath on us, and instead pours out on us innumerable graces instead. Now this admonition of Paul in uh, Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2 comes only after Paul has already unfolded for us the gospel. And thus the gospel, this display of God's mercy, serves as our motivation. Now how do the mercies of God empower a way of life, this way of life that we're instructed? God's mercy both is what enables us and what motivates us to live lives of obedience. Now, obedience is motivated by a heart that has already been transformed by the mercies of God. It is God and his mercy that softens our hearts. It is God and his mercy that grants us faith. So when we consider our sin and rebellion toward God, sin that deserves eternal damnation, the pouring out of God's wrath as a just punishment, and yet God sent his son to die in our place and take upon himself this wrath, so those who place our faith in him would be justified, Surely then we should have this heart of gratitude. And it's this heart of gratitude that leads us to worship and service. Now there are plenty of good secondary motivations for doing the right thing, for living your holy life. In fact, the Proverbs are full of these general principles that are meant to encourage good living. Take for instance, it's better not to be lazy so that you have food to eat, or it's good that a husband does not cheat on his wife knowing that the divorce and separation of the family would hurt the kids. However, there are times when in the moment these secondary motivations are, are not enough. And in these times, but really all the time, we must have a higher motivation. That is a heart of gratitude in response to the mercies of God. On the motivation for our worship, John Calvin writes, Paul's entreaty teaches us that men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal 
until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. We worship because we've experienced God's mercy. We have experienced him taking what was dead, making it alive again. The better our understanding of how depraved we are, the better we understand the, God's mercy. And the better we understand God's mercy and grow in greater thanksgiving for that, the greater is our worship. Now, as I mentioned at the start, these uh, these verses in chapter 12 form this sort of bridge between uh, the gospel message of um, the first 11 chapters with the practical, practical application of the last five chapters in Romans. And Boyce writes something along these lines saying that in chapter 12, we come to the practical section of the book. However, he goes on to say that he does not like think of this section in these terms um, he writes, doctrine is practical, and practical material must be doctrinal if it is to be any help to us at all. So if we do not have the mercies of God, that is Christ's substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, and many other doctrines contained in the first 11 chapters of this book, as a motivation, we'll be unable to live out the life of worship to which we are called in chapter 12. So now let us take a look at verse 2. Um, John Piper said that uh, verse 2 says literally what verse 1 says figuratively. So I think that as we look at verse 2, we'll be able to come to better understand and apply what we uh, talk about with verse 1. So let me read verse 2 again for us. Not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this verse begins with a negative command and then a positive one. So first, the negative, do not be conformed to this world. What does it look like to be conformed to this world? What should we avoid? So we see a picture of this conformity in Romans 1. We see that the people of the world value creation over the creator. Verses 22 and 23 tell us, claiming to be wise, they became fools exchanged the glory of the mortal God with images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we also see that people of the world think they're smarter than God. Verse 25 tells us that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now what does it look like to live as not conformed to this world? To start, this command goes much deeper than just avoiding some of the activities that the world engages in, um, like sex and alcohol, or sex outside marriage, that is, or drugs and alcohol. This command has to do more with our worldview. Are we set on pursuing things of the world, things of this world, gain for ourselves, or is our worldview centered on Christ? Are we interpreting the world from a man-centered view or a God-centered view? 1 John 2, 15-17 tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what do we love? For what we love will be what we pursue. And if we're seeking after the things of this world, we will soon be conformed to it. In a similar manner, manner, 
Paul in Colossians 3.2 tells us, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So in my reading for a church history, history class that I'm currently taking, I came across this quote that I think does a good job of describing what the Christian um, life looks like, being in the world but not being conformed to it. Keep in mind this is written in a second century context, but still applies very much to our situation today. Now, speaking of Christians, the author of the Epistle to Diognetus, an early apology or argument in defense of the Christian faith, writes, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country, and every land of their birth is the land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, they get children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make money ri many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So I find that the author of this letter did a good job of highlighting the ways in which we live in the world but we refuse to conform to its ways. And the quote highlights a few contrasts between the Christian and the culture at the time. So unlike the rest of society, Christians did not kill their kids. 1,800 years later, and this is as it turns out, still an extremely relevant contrast between Christians and the society around us. Unlike the rest of society, which is quick to hate those who hate them, disrespecting those who disrespect them, the Christian is called to love those, even those who hate and desire them. So we are called to engage in and with the culture, but cannot allow the culture to lead us to sin. So here are just a couple more questions, these examples, of times that we, that we face today that we can think about as a measure of whether or not we're living in conformity to the world. So we live in the United States and uh, are citizens of the country and I'm thankful for that. But am I identified primarily as an American or as a follower of Christ? We live in a country where we have some ability to engage in the political system, but do I do so out of ideological pride or out of a heart of love for my neighbors seeking what's best for them? We have opportunity to work and to make money, but what goals am I pursuing with the things that God has given me? Am I seeking more and more for myself, or am I willing to give freely? So after giving us this negative command to not be conformed to the world, Paul then gives us the positive command to be transformed. Now what does the transformed life look like? So Romans 12 verses nine, Romans yeah, chapter 12 verses nine through 21, give us a picture of what a transformed life looks like. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Pay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the, the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul then goes on to tell us the means by which we are transformed is the renewal of our minds. What does it mean to renew our minds? So we must first reject our old way of thinking. That which was developed and determined by the culture in which we live, we must put on this distinctly Christian worldview. Now this has less to do with just being religious or obtaining biblical knowledge for the sake of knowledge itself. It has more to do with how our view of God impacts and shapes everything we think about and how we think about everything else. It is by God and his mercy working in us to give us a renewed mind, a new worldview, that enables us to discern what the will of God is. And in the context of these verses, the will of God is that we renew our minds. We refuse to conform to the world. We lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. Then the verse ends with a promise. That is, God's will for our lives is good, pleasing, and perfect. So in summary, this morning we've heard Paul share the gospel message. To such a message, we really have two choices. We either reject it and live in conformity to the world, or we accept it and we put our faith in it and being motivated by the mercies of God and live out obedient lives of service and worship to God. Our prayer for us this morning is that God does work in each of our hearts to grow our faith in him and our desire to serve him with the entirety of our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for both this, this encouragement and this uh, challenge that you have given us um, from this uh, letter of Paul. I pray that you would um, be working in us, that you would be um, motivating us by your mercies to live out in the life to which we're called. Amen.